Genesis chapter 41, 1 through 16. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile some cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there's no one else who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Well, good evening. I'm Pastor Brooks. Uh, lead pastor of Grace Community Church, primarily teach downtown. My wife and I, Stacy, uh, we attend here in the downtown campus. Most of you already know uh, Jason, our campus pastor. This is his first week of sabbatical, so that is why you are not seeing him here. So please keep him in your prayers as, uh, as he enjoys his well-deserved time of rest. We're continuing our series entitled Living Stones, and before Easter... We were on the life of Joseph, and where we left off with Joseph was him being cast into a pit. Now, last year, if you were here for Easter, Jason covered uh, part of 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, and I as well, and the North Liberty campus covered part of chapter 4 as well. It's always an interesting thing. As a preaching team, we talk about what we're going to preach and the text we're going to use, and invariably, it always comes out differently as it should, because we're individuals who follow the Holy Spirit. The text is the same, but sometimes we emphasize it differently. So here's what we emphasized in North Liberty, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18 on Easter Sunday last week. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For these, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
As we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but things that are unseen are eternal. And of course, last week we celebrate the resurrection, and and the reason that we can hope, and the reason we can believe that these momentary and these light afflictions, as Paul calls them, that we experience, are working in eternal weight for glory for us, is because we can take a look at the very heavy and horrendous afflictions that Christ experienced on the cross on our behalf and how he turned that for good, how, how he swallowed up death, how sin was, 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 was crushed victoriously on the cross and through the cross. But that seems abstract, and we're talking about Jesus, the God-man, and then you look at your afflictions and you look at your troubles and hardships as light or heavy as they may seem, as momentary or how much they drag on. And, and sometimes it's difficult to connect necessarily with the person and work of Jesus in our, our lives. So, so we're back in, in Living Stones and we're looking at the life of Joseph and we're going to see how this, how this text is played out in one of the Old Testament uh, faithful, Joseph. Not perfect, but certainly certainly faithful. We're going to see how his, his light, momentary afflictions God used to work an eternal weight of glory, not just for his good, but also for our good as well. So a couple bookends. The, the title of this message is Pits and the Power of God. Pits as in a dark place, not pits, but pits as in a dark place, dungeon, if you will. So the bookends that we're covering today, we're going to cover 13 years and 35 minutes. So buckle up. It's, we're not going to look at any one text real, real close, but we're going to see 13 years worth of text uh, in, 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 in 35 minutes. And the, and the bookends of, of what we're covering, it begins in the pits, where, where Joseph, in verse 24, that's a typo, it should say 37, chapter 37, 24, they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Of course, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you realize these are Joseph's brothers. They've, they've cast him into a pit. They've taken his coat of many colors. They've dipped it in goat's blood and they brought it to their father. And they said, He's, this was your son's coat, I presume. And they sold him into slavery. So it begins in a pit. And then Joseph's life goes from one pit to the other. And, and the, where we're going to end is Joseph being taken out of a pit. We hear in, in, in Genesis 41, verse 14, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. This is 13 years later, called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. This is a different pit. The first pit is a cistern. The first pit is a, uh, is a, is a, is a pit that, that's dried up. There's no water in there. This pit that we're talking about in 41 is a prison. It's a dungeon. So he's gone from one pit to the other, and Pharaoh pulls him out, and when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Thirteen years of the pits. Light, momentary affliction. That's what Paul calls these things, light, momentary affliction. How does God work an eternal weight of glory for Joseph and by way of application, you and I, through his suffering, we're beneficiaries thousands of years later. How does this all work? And how do we apply it? Three things we're going to look at in this text. First, the promise, the promise of God, in, in this case to Joseph, but why way of application, but also God's promises to us. So we have the promises. Second, 
problems or pits in Joseph's case, pits or problems. And then the third thing we're going to take a look at is the providence and power of God. We don't see the word providence actually in the text. I'll get to what that means later, but we see the providence of God all throughout the text we're looking at. And by way of application, this is a very, very important principle. So that's where we're headed. So please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. We're going to be moving uh, through a lot of scripture, um, skimming, if you will, not any one chapter in depth, but Genesis chapter 37. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open up your word. We thank you that you are providential. We thank you that you're sovereign. We thank you that you're in control, that you're good, that you overrule sin and suffering and that you use it for our good, that these light and momentary afflictions that we we suffer in this life, Lord, you are, you are weaving and, and working together to create an eternal weight of glory for your glory and for our good. And Father, we pray as we open up the scripture, you give hope. You give hope to those who feel like right now their life is a pit or they've come out of one recently or they're fearful and they're looking in, into the depths of maybe going into a season of, of pain and suffering. Uh, Lord, we need hope, and that hope can only come from you. So, Jesus, speak to us through your word. Help me to preach and teach with grace, with humility, and, Father, for for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so first of all, let's take a look at uh, the promise. In Genesis 37, from Joseph's perspective, from Joseph's perspective, he's received two dreams, and those dreams, he presumes, and he's accurate, these dreams are from God and they contain a promise. But from his limited vantage point, the sum total of that promise is your family's going to honor you, you're going to be exalted, and all your family's going to bow. And he's not inaccurate. He's, he's not reading that wrong. He may have been a little bit naive and a little bit overzealous in communicating God's purpose for these dreams to his family, but he is correct. But his perspective is very limited. His perspective is very limited. Uh, From God's purpose, those promises are, yes, his family will bow to him. That is true. His father, his mother, his brothers, they will all bow. But the purpose for which that is to, to, to come about is much grander than simply exalting Joseph amongst his family. The purpose is to deliver his family. From, from famine and starvation, which is going to come, and nobody knows this except God. And not just his family, but to deliver a, a powerful nation, Egypt, which is going to be the incubator for the nation of Israel. And not just to deliver them, but ultimately to deliver the world from sin. Because if Jacob's family and his sons all die in this family, the line of Christ stopped. That's quite a weight of glory that God is creating or working through this 17-year-old kid who is on the front end of 13 years of the pits. He has no idea. All he knows is he had a couple dreams and his family's gonna bow to him. God's purpose for that is much greater. Now, you and I are given promises as well in Christ, assuming you are in Christ, and I can't make that assumption, but if you are in Christ, you have come to a place in your life where you recognize that for a certain period of time, maybe it was for a long time until you're a young adult, or, or maybe you made this decision, you came to faith in Christ early on as a child, but you recognize that your sin had separated you from God, 
and you recognize that Christ gave his life for you and th- through Christ you could be reconciled to God, your sin simply being that, that inherent disposition that we have to live life independently of God. And so you came at some point to faith in Christ. You recognize that Jesus is a savior, that Jesus took your sins to the cross, that, that Jesus died on the cross. He was buried and rose again on the, th- on the third day. And, and through him, you have a pardon for sin. But it's more than a pardon. It's more than a pardon. You've been justified in Christ. God declares you not guilty in Christ. God also declares you righteous in Christ. So when God sees you, he sees the righteousness and the merit of his son, which is imputed to you. And and you've received the Holy Spirit, which is a seal, a guarantee of the inheritance that you have in Jesus. And that because of that, there's, there's no condemnation in Christ. None. As Jeff was talking about, as he was leading worship, sometimes we we see one failure after another. And that's true, but that's not what God sees when he sees you. He sees the meritous victory of his son when he looks at you, when he looks at me. And because of that, all the promises in God are yes and amen to you, to you and to me in Christ. And then there's the pits. See, the the suffering that you and I experience, they seem count, contradictory to the promises that, that God has given us. They, you know, it's like, oh, God, you're going to exalt, you know, all your family, they're gonna, all going to bow down to you. Well, how is that going to happen if they sell me into slavery? How is that going to happen? So the problems, the problems, they seem to contradict the promises. So with Joseph, the problems, bookended by pits, look this way. Well, first of all, we have his family. That's a problem. His brothers hated him to begin with. Well, his father loved him more than his brothers, and that was manifested by the creation of the coat of many colors, which amplified his brother's hatred for him. And if that weren't bad enough, Joseph has a couple dreams, which he foolishly shares with them, and they hate him even more. So this is, uh, this is hatred cubed, if you will. It was bad to begin with, but it just keeps getting worse. And so, you know the story, he, he comes to them to, to check up on them and they see him coming and, and they cast him into a pit. And then he is pulled from that pit and sold to Midianite slave traders. And those Midianite slave traders, they take him to Egypt and sell him to a man named Potiphar. We pick up this story in Genesis chapter 39 where we meet Potiphar. Potiphar is, Potiphar is the captain of the guard he is an official in Pharaoh's court. He's a very powerful man. Uh, so he's sold into slavery. He prospers there as much as you can prosper as, as a human, uh, as a slave. But he does well. God is with him. And he is elevated to a, a status of influence in Potiphar's house. But he's a young man. He's an attractive man. And Potiphar's wife is loose morally. And she pursues a sexual relationship with him. And, and, and Joseph, being a man of integrity and a man who wants to honor his, his God and also wants to honor his master Potiphar, he, he, he rebukes her as, as much as he can and says, how can I do this, this thing against God and sin against God and Potiphar? And, and he shuns her. And eventually, she creates a scenario where all of the other servants are not there in the home. And it's just... Joseph and her, and she comes to him and seizes him, and very subtly, if you will, says, lie with me. 
Joseph flees, and rightfully so. He flees, and I don't know if you watch, well, the, I'm dating myself. There will be about two people that remember tearaway jersey in the 1980s in football. Tearaway jerseys are the, are the things that, they're the jerseys that if in the NFL, when you tackle someone, the jerseys just tear right off. So Joseph, wearing one of those, just took off running, and his jersey tore away. And so there she is, hold, Potiphar's wife, holding his cloak, holding his garment, and the first thing she does when all the servants come back is see what this Hebrew did. He has come to make sport of us. And she accuses him of attempted rape. She accuses him of attempted rape. Now, how does Potiphar respond to that? It says Potiphar became exceedingly angry and cast Joseph into prison. Now, I'm not an Egyptian scholar. I don't know Egyptian culture I'm, I'm not going to pretend to be, but I, I do have a sinking suspicion. Well, you tell me. In the ancient world, if you were a slave and you attempted to rape the wife of your master, what is the penalty for such an offense? Death. Potiphar doesn't kill him. Why do you suppose that is? We don't have any proof from the scriptures but it's not a stretch to imagine that Potiphar knows his wife just as well as Joseph does. Of course he's angry. At whom? His wife, Joseph, both. But he spares him and he does not execute him, which you would expect in this context. Instead, he casts him into prison. So he goes from one pit to slavery to another pit, prison. So we pick it up in Genesis chapter 39, verse 21, and he is now in another pit. He is in another pit and God is with him. And it says that the the warden noticed that God was with him and put everything in Joseph's care. In other words, he became a servant to the other prisoners. And then we have Pharaoh's cupbearer. Sometime later, we're not exactly sure. This is probably maybe a decade later. Actually, been 11 years later. So about 11 years later, he's been, since the time he was thrown into the pit, so now it's 11 years later, he meets Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's baker. The two of them have a dream, separate dreams, and they're both troubled by these dreams. Joseph asks both of them, what are your dreams? Is it not God that gives the interpretation? Maybe God will tell me what the interpretation of these dreams are. So they share the dreams, and, and he tells the cupbearer, he says, your dream means this. After three days, Pharaoh will come to you and lift you up and you will be reinstated in the service of Pharaoh, in Pharaoh's household. So the baker hears this and says, well, that was a favorable interpretation. What does my dream mean? And Joseph says, after three days, Pharaoh will come for you and he will lift your head up off of your shoulders and you will be executed. Both of these come to pass, and Joseph pleads with the cupbearer, listen, I'm here because my brothers cast me into a pit. I'm here because of injustice. I'm here because I was falsely accused of a crime I did not commit. When you return to Pharaoh's household, please have mercy and remember me. And promptly, the cupbearer forgets all about him. So that's the pits. That's the problems. Now, if you're a 17-year-old kid with a promise from God and the next 13 years are pit to pit to pit to pit, where's your hope in these promises? Or how do you view this quote-unquote sovereign God who's in control of all things? 
it's reasonable to assume that someone like Joseph would struggle. It's reasonable to assume that someone like you, someone like me would struggle. And this is the way life works. You and I have been given promises by, from God. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been given the scriptures. And we seem to have an understanding. We can intellectually assent that God is providential. We can intellectually assent that God is sovereign. We can intellectually assent that God is working all things for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. We can intellectually assent that these light and momentary afflictions are working eternal weight of glory. Until these light and momentary afflictions feel forever and quite heavy and crushing. And we start to wonder. Some of you are in relationships which are very difficult. And you've prayed that you would change or the other person would change or you both would change. And it seems nothing's changing. There's just pain. Some of you, uh, you, you, you had plans and you had aspirations that didn't work out. It's gone the exact opposite of what you thought was going to happen. And it's painful. Some of you experience physical suffering, acute illnesses which are life-threatening. Some of you are, have experienced chronic illnesses which are, which are not life-threatening, but they just drag on and on and on. And, and you've prayed. And it's been longer than 13 years for some of you. Pit to pit to pit. And there, there's a sense in which the enemy will play with that and suggest maybe the God that you worship isn't really in control or maybe he has abandoned you because you're worth abandoning. These are the kind of things that we entertain in our minds. These are the kind of things that we play with. As Jeff was leading worship, it struck me talking about failure. I, I know what it means to fail. I know what it means to, to think of myself in a way that, that doesn't deserve God's grace. And, and, and maybe I've exhausted and used up God's grace. And so then you start to view your suffering as maybe, just maybe, this is what God is rightfully giving me because it's what I deserve. I don't know what Joseph felt in the pit. I don't know if he wrestled with these questions, but I know I do, and I know many of you probably do too. So those are the problems. Those are the pits. And all of us experience them. All of us experience them. So now we enter the power and the providence of God. Let me back it up just a second. The, the providence of God. I mentioned that this word providence, it's not in the text. You're not going to see it in the text, but it's all over the text. The word providence from a Bible dictionary simply means God's plan and interaction with his creation usually discussed in association with his sovereignty, foreknowledge, predestination, free will, and evil. So it's totally easy to understand just by that definition, right? So let's look at what I just, what, what those, all those words, sovereignty, foreknowledge, predestination, free will, and evil. So God's providence is his rule over all things, recognizing that he has a plan, he has foreknowledge, predestination in the midst of human free will and evil. He's got a plan and he knows exactly what he's gonna do and we don't. We're on the other side of eternity. We cannot see how he's working all things to good, for the good of those who love him and called according to his purpose. We're just simply told that he does and that's providence. Joseph is in the midst of pain and suffering from pit to pit to pit and it is God's providence that you see in hindsight, in hindsight, 
working its way through Joseph's life. His plan is being flawlessly executed. Now, I got to ask, if you're Joseph and you're in the pit and pastor such and such says God's plan is being flawlessly executed in your life, at that point, do you want to punch pastor so-and-so? Or do you say, yes, pastor, thank you for that encouragement. But it's true, is it not? His plan is being perfectly executed from pit to pit to pit. Injustice to injustice to injustice to injustice. God's providential plan is being perfectly worked out in the midst of pain and suffering. And in this case, we're talking about human injustice. That's what's going on. So that's God's providence. Now, How we think God should manifest his power. We know that God's powerful. We know that he can work all things for the good. Here's how we think God should work. And sometimes he does. Shock and awe. That's how we think he should work. And by shock and awe, I mean something which is quick, immediately observable, and you're like, that's a miracle. Shock and awe is what you see when you watch The Chosen or read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you see the paralytic being lowered through the roof, and Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk. And he picks up his mat and walk. That's shock and awe. Shock and awe is when the woman who is hemorrhaging comes up and touches his cloak, and immediately her hemorrhaging stops. And he calls attention to her and says, woman, your faith has made you well. That's shock and awe. Shock and awe is when Jesus stands outside the tomb of Lazarus and says, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus comes forth. That is shock and awe. That's what God does when he makes all things right that have been undone or ruined by sin, and he does it immediately. That's generally how we pray and what we pray for. When you pray for someone who's in pain and suffering chronically, you want shock and awe. You don't want to be told, not yet. You don't want to hear, I'm not done with this pain yet. You want shock and awe. And let me me be clear. There's nothing wrong with praying for that and there's nothing wrong with wanting it. But recognize that God is often at work more often than not in the slow and the steady and not the shock and awe. He's usually slow and steady. One of my favorite, unfavorite, but favorite scenes in The Chosen, and it's not, it's extra biblical, okay? I have no idea that this happened. By the way, I'm hoping many of you have seen this. Otherwise, the sermon illustration is completely lost. How many of you have seen this chosen so far? All right, many of you have. The scene where he, he talks with little James. And little James is, is wondering why he hasn't been healed. Because the power of God is manifested in the slow and steady and not just the shock and awe. And that's how God works. Sometimes, the, sometimes it's, he, he destroys the pit and he brings you out of the pit. And sometimes he lets you cook in the pit just like a crock pot. 
That's a terrible illustration, but it just came to me. That's why it's terrible. But the crock pot, it tenderizes what's in there. You get the idea. It breaks the tough sinews down. That's what happens in the pit. The power and the providence of God manifested in Joseph's life. We see in chapter 39, verse, verse 2, in the pit, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of the Egyptian master. His master saw the Lord was with him. And the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. We see it again when he's cast into the pit, into the prison. Chapter 39, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. In verse 23, we see that the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Chapter 40, verses 8 through 22, we see that, that Joseph gives, or rather God gives Joseph uh, um, a favor as he interprets the dreams of Pharaoh's cupbearer and, 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 uh, and the baker. We see again that, that God gave Joseph favor as he was pulled from the pit. 13 years later, from the time he was sold into slavery, 13 years later, Pharaoh learns about this, this Hebrew who can interpret dreams and he is called out of the pit. And then chapter 41, verses 15 through 57, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams and is elevated to power. Let's just look at the, some of the scripture that, that uh, just beyond what, um, what Jeff read in chapter, 40, chapter 41, Pharaoh tells Joseph the dreams and then Joseph tells Pharaoh Verse 25, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears are seven years and the dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows came up after them are seven years. The seven empty years blighted in the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what is about, he's about to do. There's going to be seven years of great prosperity and that seven years is going to be followed by seven years of, of total famine. And Pharaoh asks him, what should we do? And Joseph, because the Lord is with him in the pits and outside of the pits, God uses him to give good counsel to Pharaoh. And he says, you should store up in those seven years, take certain percentage of grain and set it aside so that you can feed your people and the people of the region in the seven years of famine. Pharaoh, being a wise ruler, says there's no one wise like you and elevates him immediately from an imprisoned Hebrew slave to second in command of all of Egypt. And now his dreams, as he remembers them 13 years ago, seem like they could actually come true. But in the midst of the pits, you can't see that. You just can't see how God is going to weave all these things together for the good of those who love him, been called according to his purpose. So let's take a look at some principles that we can take away. Principles that we can take. First of all, principle number one, 
God is with us in the pits. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Psalm chapter 23. One of the more famous Psalms. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The psalmist recognizes that there will be times we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. There will be times where we will be cast into the pit. There will be times when we are in great pain and our lives are in great peril. But he's not afraid. He said, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your pain and your suffering, whether it be acute or whether it be a chronic whether it be because of the hands of an evil people or because, it, or because it's the, the, the consequences of your own foolishness. It does not matter if you are God's child, you will never be left and you will never be forsaken and he will always be with you. That's principle number one. God was with Joseph in the pit. Secondly, God forms his people in pits. I remember my wife and I years ago, actually I think we've listened to this message numerous times. It's a a Tim Keller sermon and it's on Genesis 53, which is is how this, this life of Joseph is wrapped up. And Keller makes this observation. He, he compares chapter 50 with chapter 37 when you see Joseph's dysfunctional family for the first time. And he asks this question to, to, to God. He asks it to his, his congregation. And it, it's a question that we ask. We, we read a story like that and say, why doesn't God just show up in chapter 37? You know, this is a dysfunctional family 101, right? You got the the father who favors the younger, makes him this nice coat, and clearly doesn't love his other sons that come from the other 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 mothers, the other wives. And and then you got Joseph, the bratty teenager, who even if he's not bratty, he's super naive in in sharing these dreams in the way that he did. And then you got the brothers who are just awful. And they hate this kid. They hate this kid. And, and Keller asked this question. He goes, do you ever wonder why God just doesn't show up like in a cloud of Shekinah glory and say, stop it. You, Jacob, you are the worst father ever. Could you just try loving your boys as if they are all the same? Could you just do that? And Joseph what are you thinking sharing these dreams? Hey, you know what? You're all going to bow to me. You're all going to bow to me. You're all gonna... What are you thinking? Stop it. Stop being a brat. And you, 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 you other boys, hatred has no place. Yes, I know your father loves him more than you. Yes, I know that he's a bratty teenager. But murderous thoughts? Come on, guys. Get real. Knock it off. And Keller asks this question. He says, why doesn't God do this? Why doesn't he just show up and, and, and lecture everyone? Because nobody changes after hearing a lecture. But do you know how people change? When their lives are thrown into the pit. That's where change takes place. 
when you're thrust into a furnace, when you're thrust into a cauldron, when you're tested as though by fire, the chaff burns away and character is formed. That's where, that's where character is formed. You know, if God would have showed up to me in 1988 with a legal pad, pages after pages after pages after pages. It says, Brooks, I saved you last week. Now knock it off. Here's all the stuff that I have to, you have to change. So quit it. Here's the sins of neglect and here's the sins of omission. And here's the sins of commission. Just stop it. I would have dropped dead of a heart attack. It would have scared me to death. But what has he done instead? He's allowed me to go from pit to pit to pit. Sometimes pits of my own making, sometimes not. He's allowed me to go through suffering and, and in various contexts, relationally, physically, spiritually. And he's formed me. And he's still forming. This is called progressive sanctification. This is what God does. He changes us. He justifies us in an instant. He sanctifies us over a lifetime. And he uses a hammer and a chisel and a furnace and lots of different pits. Because he loves us. He's in the process of forming. He forms Joseph into a man who is able to lead and administrate an empire. Where does he form him? In a pit. He wasn't ready for that leadership as a teenager, boasting about dreams, but he became a humble servant as he served as a slave, as he served as a prisoner. And now he's as he serves at the hand of Pharaoh. Third point, God's power is far more visible to others through our suffering than our successes. I wish this were not true. Actually, I don't wish it were true. Personally, I wish it were true, but I don't intellectually because I know that this is the way it works. We want God to use us as shining examples when we win life's wrestling matches or life's success stories. We want to be that, that person on the podium who says, I just want to give all glory to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. We want the microphone on our face when we win. I literally wanted that as a wrestler. That's what we want. We want to be the example of the person who wins the gold medal and God's going to use our success for his glory. But you know what God generally does? <laughs> he, he takes our brokenness and uses that. I know some of you are probably too young to remember Chuck Colson. Maybe you've heard of him. He was special counsel to Richard Nixon in, in his administration. And he was one of only two people that served time for Watergate. And I remember listening to a sermon that he gave. I love this. He said, I was a merchant marine. I was the top of my class in Brown. Magna cum laude. I was this, I was that, I was this, I was that. I was special counsel to the President of the United States. That's my resume. Do you know the one thing that God has chosen to use for his glory in my life? I am a convicted felon. All of his awards and all of his achievements, God couldn't use but the fact that he was a convicted felon, he was in a perfect place to serve God. 
God chooses to use our suffering more than he does our success. Joseph, in his faithful servanthood, in the midst of intense suffering, got the attention of everyone around him. And that is the path by which God prepared him for an eternal weight of glory. And the last point is this. You're all... All of us are going to experience suffering. We're all going to experience pain. We're all going to experience pits from time to time. But they won't last. God is eventually going to lift you out of that pit. God is eventually going to say to you, pick up your mat and walk. God is eventually going to restore your broken heart. God is eventually going to restore your broken legs. God is eventually going to restore all that the fall has taken from humanity. And you might see that in bursts of glory with shock and awe, or you might not ever see it until Jesus returns, or you go home to be with him. But know this, you will not be left in the pit. And the reason that you can know that you will never be left in the pit is because another suffering servant entered the pit. And Joseph is a prototype. He's a foreshadowing of that suffering servant. In Isaiah chapter 53, we'll close with this. Why I did not put a Kleenex in my pocket, I cannot comprehend. Isaiah 53, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not, just like Joseph. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. That's what you assume when you see someone thrown in the pit and has the luck that Joseph has. He must be smitten by God. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like sheep that is before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and just, just judgment he was taken away, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, though he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That is a beautiful passage, and it is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Joseph foreshadowed the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not esteemed. He was not lifted up. He was thrown into a pit. He didn't bear the iniquities of his brothers, but it's through his suffering and through his righteousness, his brothers received bread. And the entire nation was delivered. 
And it's through the sacrifice and the suffering of Jesus as a faithful servant, a suffering servant who suffered even unto death, death on a cross. Paul says in Philippians chapter two, it's because of that, that he will be exalted and every knee will bow. Not just Joseph's family, but my family and your family and every family on the the earth will bow to the Lord Jesus because he went into the pit of suffering on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, for your mercy. You are truly good. You are truly glorious. Lord, thank you that you have gone into suffering for us, that you have conquered sin, that you have conquered death. And I, Lord, I pray for each and every person here that they would embrace you, that they would trust you, and they would cling to you in the midst of their own pain and their own suffering, recognizing that you will deliver us from the pit and that you will not waste one ounce of suffering and you will use it for your glory and ultimately our good. We praise you and honor you in Jesus' name, amen.